Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. Greetings. This week in immigration, the new asylum regulations were enjoined by a federal judge, and the Supreme Court took up the issue of whether the grant of TPS qualifies as an inspection and admission for adjustment of status purposes. This week in the United States, we saw an attempted coup led by a bare-chested man wearing what appears to be buffalo horns and fur. What a week. We've got four losses for non-citizens, with, as always, legal nuggets scattered in. I hope you enjoy. Starting with the board's first case of 2021, we have matter of OMO. This case is about credibility and an immigration judge's authority to deem documents fraudulent. The respondent is a Convention Against Torture applicant from Nigeria. In support of his application, he testified that while he was attending college in Nigeria, he became active in the Committee for Defense of Human Rights, and that as a consequence of his activism, the Nigerian State Secret Service detained, interrogated, and physically mistreated him in 2005 and again in 2010. He feared torture if returned to Nigeria for a similar reason. He was a Convention Against Torture applicant, and not asylum applicant, because he had been convicted of fraud crimes that the immigration judge deemed to be aggravated felonies. The respondent submitted various pieces of evidence, including a December 2009 document purportedly signed by Nigeria's Commissioner for Education, and he was asked about the commissioner and the document on cross-examination by DHS. After attesting to the document, DHS impeached the respondent with evidence that a different individual was actually serving as Nigeria's Commissioner for Education at the time of the letter. Not good. Also, a flyer the respondent submitted showing that he was a wanted man in Nigeria spelled the country Nigeria wrong and had a suspicious-looking signature and seal. Also not good. The IJ found the respondent not credible, 
largely due to the problematic documents, and denied cat protection. In this case, on appeal, the BIA affirmed. It held that the IJ properly found the two documents, quote, fabricated, appropriately considered and rejected the respondent's attempts to explain the discrepancies, and that the IJ properly based her adverse credibility finding on a finding that the respondent had submitted fabricated documents. Now, to be fair, the BIA recognized that an IJ may not find a document fabricated based on speculation, and quote, particularly where the respondent's testimony was otherwise found credible, end quote. And indeed, sometimes, as the BIA recognized, an IJ cannot make a fraudulent document finding without DHS submitting, quote, forensic analysts or other expert testimony, end quote. However, no such specialized testimony is needed where the documents, quote, contain hallmarks of fraud, which include misspellings, overwriting, incorrect information, and alterations, end quote. Such was the case here. This, combined with other inconsistencies and the fact that the respondent had been convicted of fraud crimes in the U.S., sufficed for an adverse credibility finding. The IJ then considered whether the other evidence showed that Mr. OMO warranted cat protection. But it appears that most, if not all, of the evidence relied on Mr. OMO's own testimony, which the IJ had rejected. So cat protection was denied. Here are a few more observations and some nice quotes. DHS and maybe some IJs will urge for an expansive interpretation of this decision, but it might not be warranted. Absent the quote, hallmarks of fraud, end quote, identified by the BIA in this case, or even with such hallmarks, the BIA states in a footnote that, quote, if the DHS had challenged the authenticity of the document and the defects were not obvious, or if the immigration judge otherwise determined that forensic analysis was warranted, she could have required the DHS to seek forensic analysis or provide expert testimony, end quote. Not only that, but the BIA mentions multiple times in this decision that the respondent was given an opportunity to explain the discrepancies, that his counsel was given an opportunity to address the discrepancies in closing, and that the parties were even allowed to brief the issue post-hearing. Only with those safeguards did the BIA reach its conclusion in this case. Remember that. Next, Although they were used against Mr. OMO, here are two nice quotes to use in your own asylum and credibility briefs and appeals. One, quote, The immigration court system has no more solemn duty than to provide refuge to those facing persecution or torture in their home countries, consistent with the immigration laws. End quote. And two, quote, An adverse credibility finding must be based on the totality of the record not a selective reading of certain facts, evidence, or inconsistencies to support a particular result, end quote. I'll take them both. And finally, I think it's worth noting that in a footnote, as so often occurs, the BIA cites to Matter of Pineda, published by the board in 1989, for the holding that, quote, the most persuasive evidence presented is documentary evidence which was contemporaneous with the events in question, end quote. Didn't help Mr. OMO, but if you have it in your case, that's a helpful quote to know and to rely upon when building your record. And that 
is a matter of OMO. Next, we have Velasquez Alvarado v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on January 5, 2021. This case is about asylum and particular social groups, specifically female victims of domestic violence. Ms. Velasquez Alvarado and her daughters fled Honduras for the United States in 2014. They requested asylum at the border and were placed in removal proceedings. Ms. Velasquez Alvarado claimed to fear her partner, who had, quote, subjected her to verbal, physical, and sexual abuse, and had threatened to kill her and rape and kill her daughters, end quote. She had letters, a psych evaluation, and photographs to prove it. In her removal proceedings, she also included expert reports on gender relations and domestic violence in Honduras. Ms. Velasquez Alvarado, through counsel, based her claim to asylum on two particular social groups. One, Honduran women who are unable to leave a domestic relationship. And two, Honduran women who are viewed as property. Recall, for a particular social group to be cognizable under asylum law, it must be immutable, particular, and socially distinct in the society in question, a complicated analysis that seems to shift slightly with each published case. The IJ denied the application for a variety of reasons, but in 2020, the BIA affirmed on slightly different grounds. It held that although Ms. Velasquez Alvarado's abuse was, quote, significant, both particular social groups were not cognizable. Relying on matter of AB and the 11th Circuit's 2019 decision in Amescua Prasiado. In this case, the 11th Circuit reviewed only the BIA's decision, the final decision in the case, and affirmed it. It deferred to the Attorney General in matter of AB and additionally found the first particular social group based on domestic violence not immutable, because to be immutable, the quote, defining attribute must be independent of the persecution or risk of persecution alleged, end quote. In other words, the 11th Circuit held, the particular social group can't be circularly defined by the risk of persecution to its members. The 11th Circuit also found the group insufficiently particular, and this is all not entirely surprising, as the 11th Circuit made a similar finding regarding Mexican women unable to leave their domestic relationships in Amazcua Preciado. The 11th Circuit, also not so surprisingly, held that the BIA didn't err in applying matter of AB rather than matter of ARCG, even though matter of AB was published during the pendency of Ms. Velasquez Alvarado's BIA appeal. This is because matter of AB, according to the 11th Circuit, quote, merely clarified the law, end quote, rather than changed the law. And so, retroactivity concerns are inapplicable. Turning to the second particular social group, Honduran women who are viewed as property, the 11th Circuit held that it too lacked particularity, as it would appear to cover all women in Honduras. The 11th Circuit noted that Ms. Velasquez Alvarado's expert testified that, quote, because of a culture of machismo in Honduras, all Honduran women and their children are perceived as property of their husbands and fathers, end quote. And the 11th Circuit finally noted that because the particular social groups were not cognizable, Ms. Velasquez Alvarado was also ineligible for humanitarian asylum, 
which, quote, still requires a showing of past persecution on account of a statutory protected ground, end quote. I don't have anything else to note here, other than a hope that incoming Attorney General Merrick Garland will be as active in issuing published and precedential immigration decisions as President Donald Trump's attorneys general were. And that is Velasquez Alvarado, the U.S. Attorney General. Moving on, we've got Ovias v. Rosen, published by the Fifth Circuit on January 6, 2021. This case is about motions to reopen and equitable tolling. After growing up in the United States, Mr. Ovalis was physically removed to the Dominican Republic in 2004 after an IJ and the BIA found that his drug possession conviction was an aggravated felony. In 2007, Mr. Ovalis filed a motion to reopen through counsel and argued, based on the 2006 Supreme Court case Lopez v. Gonzalez, that his conviction was not in fact an aggravated felony and that he was improperly deemed ineligible for cancellation of removal during his immigration court proceeding. The BIA and then the Fifth Circuit found that the motion to reopen was untimely and denied it, because the motion was filed eight months after Lopez was issued, and such motions to reopen must be filed within 90 days of the final order of removal. Mr. Ovias filed a second motion to reopen many years later in 2017, arguing that the BIA should equitably toll the filing deadline, and that a recent Fifth Circuit case, Lugo Resendev v. Lynch, allowed for equitable tolling. That motion was denied by the BIA, and on petition, the Fifth Circuit held that it lacked jurisdiction to review the equitable tolling issue entirely. Last term, however, the Supreme Court concluded that the Fifth Circuit was wrong to hold that it lacked jurisdiction to review the issue, and remanded the matter back to the Fifth Circuit. And here we are. Back on remand, the Fifth Circuit did indeed review the equitable tolling issue and denied the petition. As we've discussed before, in the Fifth Circuit, similar to all circuits, to equitably toll the time deadline to file a motion to reopen, a non-citizen, quote, must demonstrate that one, he has been pursuing his rights diligently, and two, an extraordinary circumstance prevented him from timely filing, end quote. And the Fifth Circuit did recognize that, quote, an intervening legal change can constitute an extraordinary circumstance, end quote, thereby potentially equitably tolling the deadline to file a motion to reopen by many, many years. But the Fifth Circuit rejected Mr. Ovalis' argument that the court's 2016 equitable tolling decision in Lugo Resendez was sufficiently extraordinary to warrant tolling in this case. Rather, the Fifth Circuit held that Lugo Resendez simply, quote, resolved an open question and was not an intervening change in binding precedent, end quote. And, because Lugo Resendez is not an extraordinary circumstance, there is no grounds to equitably toll, which means Mr. Ovales had to comply with the 90-day deadline to file a motion to reopen, which he did not do. Bad news for Mr. Ovales after a long fight. One final thing. The Fifth Circuit quotes its own decision in Londono Gonzalez v. Barr, discussed on the podcast in 2020, in which it states, quote, Uncertain legal terrain does not create an obstacle that stands in the way of an individual meeting the motion to reopen deadline, end quote. 
Now, of course, the Fifth Circuit used that quote to explain why many changes of law don't constitute extraordinary circumstances warranting equitable tolling. But I like the quote, as, to me, the Fifth Circuit is inviting, intentionally or not, practitioners to make creative motions to reopen, based on extensions of existing law or interpretations of law as practitioners would like it to be. And that is Avias v. Rosen. Finally, we have a long and complicated case from the Sixth Circuit, Singh v. Rosen, published on January 7, 2021. This case arises in the cancellation of removal context, but it's really about jurisdiction and reviewability. And although Mr. Singh lost, this is a big case for circuit court practitioners. Here, relying on the Supreme Court's decision last term in Guerrero Las Bria, the Sixth Circuit held that it can review whether or not the facts of an immigration case satisfy the hardship standard for cancellation of removal. Because the analysis is a mixed question of law and fact that Guerrero Las Bria requires that a circuit court review. Here's what's going on. Mr. Singh is from India, and he entered the U.S. in 1991. He eventually went out of status and in removal proceedings indicated that he would apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB, requiring, among other things, that he establish that he has resided continuously in the U.S. for at least 10 years immediately preceding the service of an NTA, and that his removal cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident, parent, spouse, or child under the age of 21. Mr. Singh claimed that his removal would cause such hardship to his U.S. citizen children and his LPR mother. The IJ and the BIA denied the case, finding, as relevant to this decision, that the hardship standard had not been met. Now, the INA has quite a few jurisdiction-stripping provisions. One of those is Section 242A2Bii, which specifically precludes a circuit court from reviewing decisions made in the discretion of the BIA, and cancellation of removal is discretionary. For example, Section BII would preclude, quote, a challenge to the BIA's final decision that an immigrant is not entitled to cancellation of removal as a discretionary matter, even if the immigrant meets all four eligibility factors, end quote. Put another way, according to the Sixth Circuit, the section precludes review of the BIA's finding that, say, a non-citizen doesn't warrant cancellation of removal because he's just a bad person. Not only that, Section 242A2Bi broadly restricts review of any judgment regarding the granting of relief under a variety of statutes, including the cancellation of removal statute which the Sixth Circuit, like many circuits, has held precludes review of purely factual determinations related to those forms of relief, such as, say, the BIA's finding as to the amount of years that a non-citizen has lived in the U.S. That, according to the Sixth Circuit, would be a purely factual question that 242A2Bi would preclude review of. But Section 242A2D implemented after the Supreme Court's decision in St. Cyr, states that circuit courts retain jurisdiction to review constitutional claims or questions of law. This exception, which allows for review, obviously includes per se questions of law, such as a determination of what a statute means. 
but it's been a bit of an open question about what else it includes. Following the Supreme Court's decision in Guerrero Las Brio last term, the Sixth Circuit held here that Section 242A2D also allows it to review the application of undisputed facts to a legal standard, also known as a mixed question of law and fact. The question before the Sixth Circuit here is whether the undisputed facts of this case meet the legal definition of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship for non-LPR cancellation of removal. That question falls somewhere in the middle of a pure question of law and an unreviewable question of fact and discretion. But in this decision, the Sixth Circuit held that the question falls on the side of reviewability. In so holding, the Sixth Circuit cast aside a whole bunch of its unpublished case law. It also adds to a circuit split post-Guerrero-Lasbria with the Third and Tenth Circuits, and, according to the Sixth Circuit, actually aligns in part with the Eleventh Circuit's recent en banc decision in Patel. Now, just as an aside, we discussed Patel extensively on the podcast a couple of months ago, and Patel says a lot of things about jurisdiction. And if the Supreme Court takes up Patel, all of this may change in the coming years. So stay tuned. But back to this case. One reason for the Sixth Circuit's conclusion that it has authority to review the issue is because, quote, nothing in the cancellation of removal text suggests that the board has discretion to decide whether hardship exists, end quote. That is, even though the ultimate decision to grant cancellation relief is discretionary, the decisions of whether factual hardship rises to the level of exceptional and extremely unusual is not discretionary. Instead, following Guerrero-Lasbria, that is a legal analysis. The Sixth Circuit also based its decision on an express change in the text between the non-LPR cancellation of removal statute and its predecessor relief statute, suspension of deportation. See, the pre-1997 suspension statute was viewed completely discretionary and therefore unreviewable because the statute made relief available, quote, in the opinion of the Attorney General, end quote. The cancellation of removal statute, however, deleted that expansive and purely discretionary language. So, great news for petitions for review in the Sixth Circuit. Unfortunately, reviewing Mr. Singh's case, the Sixth Circuit affirmed the BIA's denial. First it held that, if as here, the mixed question of law is fact-intensive, the standard of review is, quote, deferential. The Sixth Circuit left for another day what specific deferential standard of review to apply. But in this case, it held that no matter the specific standard, Mr. Singh loses. That's because the BIA's finding that the, quote, diminished educational options, end quote, and other harms to Mr. Singh's children was clearly below the exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard. But note, that finding may have been different if, based on BIA precedent, Mr. Singh could have shown that his children, quote, would be deprived of all schooling or of an opportunity to obtain any education, end quote. So Mr. Singh lost his case. Here's a bit more on reviewability, NTAs, and legal arguments. (music) 
Now in this case, Mr. Singh also made a Pereira v. Sessions-based argument that the immigration court violated his due process rights when it issued a notice of hearing containing the date and time of his first hearing, thereby providing the information lacking in the notice to appear. Mr. Singh argued that an NTA is like a criminal indictment, and so, by correcting it with the information mandated by Pereira and the statute through a notice of hearing, turns the immigration court and the IJ into a non-neutral arbitrator. Now personally, I must say I don't really buy the argument, but I appreciate it, and the Sixth Circuit didn't reject it because Mr. Singh failed to make it before the BIA, thereby failing to exhaust it. So someone else should give it a shot. Staying on this a bit, the Sixth Circuit did make an interesting comment on constitutional claims before the BIA. See, IJs and the BIA sometimes state that they cannot consider constitutional arguments. But according to the Sixth Circuit, that's not entirely correct. IJs and the BIA, as agencies, cannot consider the constitutionality of a regulation or the immigration statute. Only circuits can do that. But the IJ and the BIA can consider due process issues when, say, related to procedures used to resolve a case, or whether a constitutional violation requires exclusion of an I-213 and termination of proceedings. So remember the distinction, and remind the IJ and the BIA of their authority as necessary. Finally, in this case, the BIA also held that Mr. Singh had failed to establish his 10 years of continuous presence as required to obtain non-LPR cancellation of removal. Now, following the Supreme Court's Pereira decision, the 10-year clock did not stop simply because Mr. Singh was filed with an NTA because that NTA lacked the date and time of his first immigration court hearing. But post-Pereira, in the case Garcia Romero v. Barr, the Sixth Circuit held that the 10 years does end with the service of a notice of hearing, which is almost always served shortly after the NTA. Most circuits and the BIA have issued similar holdings, and the issue is currently before the Supreme Court in a case that I guess will soon be titled Niz Chavez v. Garland. How strange and ironic. But anyway, as the issue is pending, remember to preserve the argument that a notice of hearing does not stop the cancellation of removal clock. The law just might change soon. And that is Singh v. Rosen. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook 
at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.